Well, I'd like to welcome you again to Door Creek Church. If you're a guest here today visiting at any of our campuses, maybe you're out in DeForest or on the north side of Madison or here at our Sprecher Road campus in the chapel listening online, we're really glad that you've joined us. My name's Mark, one of the pastors, part of the teaching team, and uh, we're really glad that you've joined us for this new fall series that we're calling What Matters. And so we're going to take a deep dive in some subjects that we've taught on before, but honestly, it's been, you know, bits and pieces, a a one-time message here and maybe again in a couple years. So we're really excited to go deep into friendship here in the month of September, into work in October, and then into the subject of money matters in November. So I'm imagining when you hear me talk about friends or friendship, that your mind is starting to uh, be filled with faces, young and old, of our childhood friends, our school friends, right? Or the friends that we had on our team or, uh, you know, in that choir, that drama that we were in, that play that we're in. Perhaps it was college friends that's coming into view here. Maybe some of the friends that stood up at your wedding. Maybe it's friends at work or friends in the neighborhood or friends from that training group that, you know, you're getting ready for that triathlon. Whatever it is, Here's what I know. Friendship gives us the whole gamut of experience, right? We've had some really, really good friends, and it's very likely that maybe we've had some not-so-good friends. So we have these great highs, and we have these unimaginable lows. And so all you need to do, or if you're young and you just got to trust me on this, over the course of your life, you're going to have both kinds of experiences, You're going to have the friend that the Bible talks is uh, closer than a brother or sister. And then you're going to have the friend who gives you this let's just be friend. Or even worse, this person who actually treats you like you would expect someone to treat their worst enemy. Thinking about friendship is really important. And I think it's more challenging today because of social media. I mean, maybe we don't have as many friends as Facebook reports. Maybe, just maybe. Maybe making friends is a little bit more complex than simply sending a friend's request. Maybe we aren't clear of who or what exactly is our BFF, a best friend forever. Psychologists have studied friendship and they tell us it is a crucial relationship, as or more important than our relationships within family. Criminologists tell us what happens to people in solitary confinement that have no friends, have no contact with people, and it's not a good report. Hollywood loves the theme of friendship, right? And we love to watch, whether it's been Cheers or Seinfeld, The Andy Griffith Show, or this year's 25th anniversary of Friends. And then there's music, right? James Taylor sung, You've Got a Friend. Queen, You're My Best Friend. Randy Newman from Toy Story, you love this one. You got a friend in me, and then, of course, Michael Jackson and the Jackson 5. I'll be there. And not to be left out, literature praises it. So there's the great friendship, right, of Tom Sawyer and Huck Finn and the adventures of Tom Sawyer, written by Mark Twain. Rowling's got these wonderful friendships in Harry Potter, Jane Austen in Pride and Prejudice, Shakespeare in Hamlet. And when we think about Shakespeare, when we think about, excuse me, literature, there is no better literature ever written in the history of humanity than our Bible. 
And when you think about the Bible story from beginning to end, you could say it is a story fundamentally about friendship. And so our goal today as we begin this series on friendship is to actually trace this theme of friendship from Genesis all the way through to Revelation, to understand how the Bible thinks and how the Bible talks and the Bible stories that illustrate it so that we'd understand the teaching and the implications of that, that we might apply it to our lives. So that's kind of our tack this morning. So the first thing we want to do is go to that opening section of the Bible. It's called the Pentateuch. Pent is five things, right? So the first five books, the books of the law, Genesis through Deuteronomy. And when we come to Genesis, we understand it's the book of beginnings. And in Genesis, we have this great opening story of creation. And in creation, we learn this about friendship, that we were created by God for friendship with God and with each other. So that's how the story opens up. Adam has a friendship with God. Before Eve comes into the picture, a friendship with God. All things are good. It's this beautiful world, perfect relationship with God and with the created animals that he's been called to name. And yet we read this in Genesis 2.18. The Lord God said, it is not good for the man Adam to be what? Alone. I'll make a helper suitable for him. So he's alone in that he's unique in all of creation. I don't believe in any way he's lonely or knows anything about it. But God's creation is not yet complete. And so uniquely created is the only thing in all of creation created in the image of God. God says, you need a suitable helper. You need a companion. If I may, you need a friend. Because it's not good, Adam, for you to be alone, even in this beautiful, perfect world world. And so from the start, we read about Adam and Eve's relationship with God, and it's using this idiomatic, this kind of expression here of God walking with them in the garden, which is like this temple, and them walking with God. It's this beautiful imagery of closeness. They're walking together. They're doing life together, and it's a beautiful picture where they're fully known and fully loved. It's a, it's a relationship in a place of no regrets, no gaps in any of the relationship, no shame, no hiding, completely open, trusting, loving relationship with God right at their side and with each other. But don't forget this, that before God created anything, he has always existed. God exists eternally, one God in three persons. God the Father has eternally existed. God the Son has eternally existed long before Jesus comes to the scene in Nazareth, in Bethlehem. The Holy Spirit is called the eternal spirit from eternity. So there is a friendship, if you will, within the Godhead, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. So right from the beginning, we see this beautiful picture of friendship. We were created for it with God, with each other. But then, just a few chapters later, we've got this fallout. Adam and Eve walk away from their friendship with God, and everything changes. Oh boy, does everything change. 
walking away from God, led them to being walked out, escorted right out of paradise into a world that's now cursed, not just blessed, into a world that is chaos, not just perfect harmony and beauty, a world filled with shame and evil and unimaginable horrors. In one short chapter, we turn the page from chapter 3 and we read about this unbelievable premeditated murder of their son, Abel, who was killed by their other son, Cain. And, and it's this picture, this sad picture, if you will, of Adam and Eve having to bury their son who was killed in, in, a, in a jealous rage by their other son, Cain. You don't go too far to read how things just go down and down. So we read this in chapter 6. The Lord observed the extent of human wickedness on the earth, and he saw that everything they thought or imagined, so everything that they thought or imagined, was consistently and totally evil. You think it's bad today? It was worse back in chapter 6 the very beginning of human history. So all the things that just wreck us, all the things that just break us down, the things that we can't read anymore, the things that we can't watch anymore, all the evil, all the horrors, all the things that are wrong in this twisted now fallen world, go back to the fallout where Adam and Eve walked away from the friendship they were created for and that they enjoyed perfectly until they doubted his goodness. I was working on this very section of the message when my phone on my desk next to me kind of did a little, little vibration. You know how we're so distracted, aren't we, by our little phones? And so I looked and it said, notification, BBC. Kind of like the BBC. Tap on it. And I read this horrific story. They call it the worst case of child abuse in all of Australia, where this woman, as a child, as a four-year-old, was abused sexually by her dad every day. And to cope, she created all these personalities to make it through another day. And it said at the trial of her now 74-year-old dad that this woman who reportedly has 2,500 different personalities had all these different personalities testify. And I, and I read a little further, and I wish I hadn't, to the horrors of what happened to her. And I just wept. And, and I think that we're just numb to it. It's all around us. And we're used to it, and we shouldn't be. And we ought to trace it all back to a friendship, a beautiful friendship that was abandoned for something better, which is nothing more than a ruse and a walk off a cliff. Have you ever had a friend walk out on you, treat you like an enemy, betray you or worse, and when they did, what did you feel like? What did you feel like doing? David, the psalmist, talks about this very thing in Psalm 55. And he says this, If an enemy were insulting me, I could endure it. If a foe were rising against me, I 
I could hide. But it is you, a man like myself, my companion, my close friend, with whom I once enjoyed sweet fellowship at the house of God. Now, God could have written this as we walked out, as we walked about among the worshipers. Let death take my... So this is, this is David's conclusion. This is his prayer. Wipe them out, God. Let death take my enemies by surprise. Let them go down alive to the realm of the dead, to Sheol, for evil finds lodging among them. And so when we come to this point in the storyline of chapter 3, we ask ourselves, so how is God going to treat this betrayal of betrayals? When his goodness is doubted and his loving leadership is rejected, what is God going to do? And amazingly, the story tells us he doesn't treat them or us like enemies. Rather, he treats us as friends. So in these first five books, the whole storyline of the Bible begins to unfold. We're created for a relationship with God and with each other. And if the fallout means that we walked away from that, and everything has changed in a relationship with God, a relationship with each other, and all the things that we hear about... Global warning, uh, Dorian's tornado, hurricane, and all the rest. That, that's all part of the fallout. Everything in all of God's creation affected by our rebellion and sin. And yet it's at this point in the storyline that we read about restoration. God is pursuing us out of his loving mercy to restore our friendship. Not what we would have done. And this is the rest of the story, basically all the way from Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, to the book of the letter to Jude, before we get to the end of the story, when all things are made right, and his plan of salvation is complete, his plan of restoration, his plan of reconciliation. And so, he didn't kill Adam and Eve, he could have. He didn't wipe out his image bearers and start over like he wanted to do with Israel later in history. No, actually, God provides a sacrifice out of his mercy and grace. An animal is killed. And he makes clothing out of the animal's skin because they're being ushered out now from this beautiful paradise. Because if they stayed there as now fallen, cursed individuals and ate from the tree of life, that curse would remain on their head forever. So he ushers them out. He puts the cherubim angels guarding over it. But he does so with provision. The provision of the animal who is sacrificed to protect them. And before he goes, he gives them a promise. And he says to Eve, one of your male descendants is going to crush this enemy who duped you into thinking I'd held something good from you. And he's going to crush that enemy. And here we have the, the seeds of God's restoration plan. And here's the good news. The good news is God in his mercy and love pursues his enemies, us, to make us his friends. You could almost use that as a tagline for the Bible, the Bible's a story about a gracious and merciful God who pursues us in his loving mercy, even us, his enemies, that we might become his friends. And so the whole saving purposes of God, his restoration plan, if you will, is nothing other than an act of friendship. And we see pictures of it throughout the Bible. So in Genesis 5 and Genesis 6, we meet two guys. One's named Enoch. He walks with God. 
in this chapter where everybody's dying, and he was not. He found the door back into paradise. He's with God in heaven. And then there's this guy Noah, righteous Noah, who's walking with God, close relationship because of God's mercy and grace. In chapter 12, we meet a guy named Abram. What do we know about Abram? He worships anything and everything in this place called Ur of the Chaldeans. And one day, God says, I'd like you to walk with me, Abram, and I want to bless you. And so you start walking. I've got a special place for you. And Abram, he left, and he became Abraham. And God said, I'm going to bless you so that all the families of the world could be blessed and could be my friend. The history books, Joshua through 2 Chronicles, records God's relentless pursuit of Abraham's children, the Israelites, his covenant people, pointing out God's faithfulness and continually contrasting that with our inability to stay faithful to this covenant relationship, which is even more profound than a friendship. We couldn't do it. They couldn't do it. And yet in the midst of the history section, we've got these beautiful two stories of just just unbelievable friendships. You've got Ruth and her mother-in-law, Naomi. Where you go, I'll go. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. I'm not turning my back on you. I'm going with you. I'm leaving my people. I'm going with you, Naomi. And then you've got this beautiful picture of David and Jonathan, the anointed king, with the prince who was supposed to be king. And they loved each other with a love that is unparalleled in all of Scripture apart from Christ's. In the wisdom literature, Job, Psalm, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon, those five books, the wisdom literature, which gives us the skill for living rightly in this world that is just constantly being stained by the, the sin and temptation of our broken world and our own broken hearts. It gives us the skill for living rightly in a relationship with God and with each other. So it speaks about, it teaches us about friendship, how a friend will love at all time, how a true friend is born for adversity, for a friend sticks closer than a brother or a sister. A, a, a friend sharpens us like iron sharpens iron. A friend has faithful wounds to help us be better women and better men. And then we come to the prophets. Isaiah, all the way back to Malachi. Or as my prof, Walt Kaiser, used to call him, Malachi, the Italian prophet. It's not true. He's not Italian. But anyways, so in this section, we find out that God loves us enough to give tough love to us. If faithful are the wounds of a friend, God is faithful to wound his own children who have turned their back on him, worshiping all kinds of idols. They've turned their back on each other. There is no friendship with God. There is no friendship with each other. They're trashing the vulnerable. And God says, through the prophets, he says, come back. You gotta come back. Come back to this relationship you were created for. Come back to this relationship that I've called you to have with your brothers and sisters. Come back as you anticipate a Savior who would become even a suffering servant for you. And then it brings us to the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and it presents to us Jesus, the true friend, the promised Savior, 
that goes all the way back to Genesis 3.15, that goes back to Abraham's son, that goes back to David's son, that goes back to all the prophecies and the prophets about this coming Messiah. It's Jesus, the true friend. And in the Gospels, we see Jesus as the truest of friend to all kinds of people, right? To sinners and tax collectors, to the sick and the outcasts, the lepers, the children, the rich and the poor, the powerless and the powerful, the religious, the irreligious. There isn't anyone to whom they were not open to receiving his friendship that did not receive it. He's the truest of friends who not only taught about friendship, but backed up and lived exactly what he taught. This is the greatest teaching, I believe, that Jesus gave about friendship. Greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friend. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants or slaves because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends. For everything that I learned from my father, I've made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit. Now, when you think about what Jesus just said, he did exactly what he said, but even more so. Greater love has no one than this, that he lays down his life for a, how did it go? For a friend. Jesus laid down his life for enemies. And we see it all the way to the cross. So when Judas betrays him, with the mob of the, the guards from the priests, Jesus doesn't say, you snake in the grass. I always knew it was you, Judas. He called him. Do you remember what he called him? Friend. He called him friend. The bogus accusers and the bogus trial and the conviction and the mocking and the beatings and the spitting and the humiliation of hanging naked and his crucifixion on the cross. And what did Jesus say to those guys? He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they are doing. Jesus laid down his life for you and me, God's enemies, to make us God's friend. I feel like Romans chapter 5, verses 10 and 11 in the New Living Translation just has such a great expression of this truth for since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son while we were still his enemies this is the good news this is the gospel what we just read there restored by the death of his son while we were still enemies we will certainly be saved through the life of his son so now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends of God, friends of God. That brings us from the Gospels to the one history book in the New Testament, it's the book of Acts. And what's the book of Acts about? It's the Acts of the Spirit-empowered followers of Jesus who take this good news message and see enemies of God made into friends from all nations, not just Jews, but now even Gentiles, not just in Jerusalem, but Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The book that begins in Jerusalem ends in Rome. And we talked about the, book, the church in Antioch a couple weeks ago, and we bless their obedience to the Great Commission. That brings us to the epistles, the letters, Romans, all the way through to the letter 
that we call Jude. The, the epistles are all about the application of the gospel in our lives. What does it mean to have God as our Savior? What does it mean to be new creations in Christ? What are these good works that he's prepared in advance for us to do? And, and it gets down to loving God with all of our heart and loving each other that we might in our unity, though marked with diversity, point people to Jesus, the truest friend, who enables us to be true friends. And what happens in the epistles is the word friendship is used all the time, but there's only one place in James chapter 4 that it teaches on friendship, about you cannot both have friendship with God and friendship with the world because the world is diametrically opposed. Every other, I counted about 33 references to friend in this section of the New Testament, and it all has to do with what the, what the writers use to address the Christ followers, the church, their friends. But the, the epistles, though, take it one step further. So all of a sudden, it helps us understand that we're not just friends. Through Christ's ultimate act of friendship, we have become family. We're his sons, we're his daughters, we're brothers and sisters. It's so, it's going from an image bearer to now uh, a friend like Abraham of God to now a daughter or son of God. And when we get to the end of the story in Revelation, the images were the bride of Christ, a level deeper. So let's talk about Revelation, the end of the story. The restoration is complete for those who've received God's offer of friendship in Christ. There's a perfect relationship with God and each other. God's family is diverse, made up of people from every nation, tongue, and tribe gathered around Christ, experiencing the joy of unbelievable friendship and fellowship with God and with each other. In other words, we're back to the beginning where it all started before it all went bad. Image bearers who became enemies out of God's grace become friends and then sons and daughters are called his bride. So there's implications. Let me just list out a few of them. First, if we are created for friendship with God and each other, created, this is design, then we need to conclude this is important. Both are important. Some of us are here and go, I've got a great friendship with God. I don't need, no, we, we need both. It's not good for man and women to live alone, Genesis 2.18. Some of us go, I don't need God. i got all kinds of friends. No, we were created for a relationship with God and each other. There's a second implication. The history of God's constant, relentless pursuit of human beings throughout the storyline of the Bible, means this, that there is nothing that you've done. There is nothing that you are doing. There is nothing that you could do in the future that precludes a friendship with God. So don't believe a lie that's ticking in your mind and that's telling you this, that God can never love me because... You just read through the storyline and you realize, oh my word, it's never been about us. It's always been about him, his unconditional mercy and grace and love. There's a third implication. 
And that has to do with the priority of a relationship with God first. So we note that the relationship in terms of earthly relationship begins with Adam and God before it's Adam and Eve. And understanding the priority and the primacy of a relationship with God is critical if we're going to get the horizontal relationships right. So it's out of our relationship with God and the fullness of God and the forgiveness of God and of the healing of God that we are positioned then to be really good friends. Neglecting God and a relationship with God, we know from the storyline, comes at a huge cost. And so when God is first in our life, he brings order and a pathway and fullness to pursue and navigate the complexities of friendship in a fallen world. And so Jesus is the truest friend. Look at this slide right here. Jesus is the truest of friends whose friendship enables us to be true friends. And so we start with our relationship with God. Consider this. Right now, it's possible that you have your eyes on the wrong friendship relationship. Like you are so conscious that, and you are craving so much. Maybe you're new in the area. Maybe it's been like this for a long time in your life. And you just want a good friend. You just want a good friend. And maybe, just maybe, and it's just like God to do this, that he's using the gap. He's using the vacancy. He's using this kind of relational desert right now. He's using the friction that's going on in some of our relationships to get our attention because his relationship with us is gapless. There is no frustration. Could there be complexity and perplexity? Absolutely. But he's a perfect friend who loves us faithfully from beginning to end. Maybe God is using your longings to open yourself up to consider a relationship with God. There's a fourth and final implication. As we do relationships, as we pursue friendship, we're going to be reminded that we're still living in the middle of the story. It's not revelation yet, restoration complete. We're living between the two comings of Christ, his first coming. His kingdom is broken in, but there's still brokenness in us and in this world. And so our friendships are going to continually remind us our own inability to be the true friend that we're called to, that we even want to be, that our friends desperately need us to be, that those won't be complete. So we'll be reminded of the brokenness, but we're also going to get taste of the beauty. Beautiful tastes of God's kindness and his riches. The kind of thing that Jonathan and David and Ruth and Naomi, and I pray that some of you are experienced even in our life groups here as we're doing life together. I love this quote from Lewis out of his classic book, Four Loves. The friendship is not a reward for our discrimination and good taste in finding one another out. It is the instrument So friendship is the instrument by which God reveals to each the beauties of all the others. They are, like all beauties, derived from him 
And then, in a good friendship, increased by him through the friendship itself so that it is his instrument for creating as well as for revealing. So expect that. Expect frustration. Expect disappointment. Expect surprise in some of these relationships that you didn't know were going to take a hard 90-degree turn. But But expect beauty and new tastes of his goodness through friendships. When the Bible talks about friendship, there's a beautiful picture that is painted that has to do with a soul connection. In Deuteronomy chapter 13, verse 6, it talks of a friend as your own soul. So close, that friend is like, it's like your own soul. Or as we read in 1 Samuel 18 about David and Jonathan, the soul of Jonathan was knit, interwoven, right? To the soul of David. And if that's true, it was vice versa, David and Jonathan. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. So a friend like that is rare, humanly speaking. Some would say if you could have one or two, maybe three of those in a lifetime, you are really fortunate. But here's what we need to understand, that this day, this very day, God is offering through Jesus Christ, the truest of friends, a soul knit, a soul transformed, a soul inhabited with Christ's spirit so that we have the power and the desire to be the people that bring the greatest flourishing and thriving to us and others. So what do we do with this? Well, the first is we've got to ask ourselves some questions. Where is God asking us to grow in this whole area of friendship with him and with others? Are we good friends? Are we good friends? Do we need to part company with any of our friends. Remember what the Bible says? Bad company corrupts. Do you have a good friend, a friend of your own soul, a soul-knitted friend? Those are good things to reflect on. But more important is the ultimate friendship question that comes out of James chapter 2, verse 23. Remember we talked about Abraham was called God's friend. Here's the quotation right here. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, and he was called God's friend. He was called God's friend. So the question isn't, do you call God friend? The question fundamentally today, as we go through this sweep of of scripture, is does God call us friend? Does he call us friend? Jesus is God's one and only son who died on the cross so that we could become God's friend. The God who made the universe, every molecule in it, who holds it all in place, desires a relationship with you today. His plan to restore and reconcile all things back to God, hinges and hangs on Jesus, his death and resurrection. He walked out of heaven. He walked into the darkness. 
He put on human flesh, pursued friendship with all people all the way to the cross. And as he contemplated the restoration plan and understood the implications of not just the suffering and humiliation of the cross, but of actually taking on our sin so that he would become sin and be separated with the Holy Father and the Holy Spirit. And he said, God, if there's a plan B, I'm all for plan B. There wasn't a plan B. He didn't walk away, but he steeled himself and walked to the cross. And then three days later, he walked out of the tomb. And before he left this earth, he said, I'm going to walk with you because I'm going to be with you forever through my spirit. Jesus Christ, our friend. He is the friend you were created for. He's the friend you've always wanted. Jesus is the friend you need. Jesus makes us God's friend. Jesus makes us true friends. So the question then is, are you God's friend? John 15 helps us answer this very question. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I've called you friends. For everything that I learned from my Father, I've made known to you. You didn't choose me, but I chose you and appointed you so that you might go and bear fruit, fruit that will last. And here are the tests whether God calls us friend. We can know we're God's friend because our trust is fully in Christ, in him alone, in his good work alone, not my good works, not anything else. That faith is going to show up every day in all kinds of ways as we keep trusting him and taking him at his word. It's this loyal obedience that's marked by this just love for others. And if that faith is at work, then we're changing. We're bearing fruit. We're becoming more like Jesus. We're acting more like Jesus. We're better positioned to point others to him. And so today, I want to invite you to receive the truest friend, Jesus Christ, that you might become God's friend. Maybe today's like the day that God met Abraham. His name was Abram when he met him. The guy who was worshiping everything and anything back in Ur of the Chaldees. It wasn't on his schedule that day. It wasn't on his to-do list. But God called him, Abram, would you walk with me? He's the first in his family. Maybe today you're going to be the first in your family to walk with God. Then there was a guy who was sure he was walking with God. His name was Saul. He was walking to a place called Damascus to go beat up on Jesus' followers. When Jesus met him and he said, why are you persecuting me? You're not on my team. You're against me. Why don't you walk with me? And then walk for me around the known world, 10,000 miles, to land and sea, to tell others about a friendship with me. I'm going to pray a prayer in a moment that goes like this. There's nothing magical about words, but words give expression to our heart's desire. If it's your desire to come into friendship with God, to receive his friendship by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, then here's a way to express it. Jesus I admit that I've walked away from you doing life on my own. Thank you for paying my debt, bearing my punishment, and offering forgiveness for all I've done and left undone. I turn from my sin and trust in you as my Savior. Help me walk with you now 
and always. Amen. So just in a minute, I'm going to go through that. And if that's your heart's desire, then you pray that silently right where you are, whether in one of our venues or listening online. Let's pray. So Lord, as we look back on this wonderful story, we marvel at your goodness, your patience, your long-suffering, your mercy, and your unconditional love. And Lord Jesus, we thank you for walking out of heaven and not walking away from the cross to to reconcile us and to rescue us and to restore us to friendship. Deepen our love for you. Deepen our relationships with each other. Bless the groups that meet here at Door Creek Church. And grant faith, Lord, even as you hear those silently pray these words. Lord Jesus, I admit that I have walked away from you doing life on my own. Thank you for paying my debt, bearing my punishment, and offering forgiveness for all I've done and left undone. I'm turning from my sin, and I'm trusting in you as my only Savior. Help me to walk with you now and always. In Jesus' name, God's people said, Amen.